Arbor Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with Greg Gandrud, who is the treasurer of the California Republican Party, former Carpinteria city councilman, and a uh, longtime prominent uh, conservative Republican in Santa Barbara County, somebody who I've known for 20 years, probably, you know, when I was a young reporter at the, the news press, and uh, somebody who uh, has been doing a lot of incredible things, you know, in, in the community and been a, a pioneer in many ways. We're going to talk about that as well. Now he's in Ventura County, and we're going to talk about what's going on with him today and just kind of have a big conversation about uh, conservative politics and issues. Greg, we haven't talked in a while. Uh, it's nice to see you. How are you doing today? Thank you, Josh. Great to be with you. It's a pleasure to be here. Feeling good. Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Uh, we've been um, up and down over the years, you know, with my reporting. You know, I'm older now, I'm a little wiser, you know, so I can always count <laughs> on you. We all are. <laughs> I can always count on you to, to, you know, scold me a little bit, you know, if an angle is not right or, you know, there's some little spin or slant on something. But we both have a lot of respect for each other, you know, uh, these days in terms of our work. And so I wanted to just kind of talk to you about what's going on sort of uh, politically conservative politics. I want to talk to you about Trump. I want to talk to you about some issues like housing. I know you had a big uh, experience with COVID that I want you to hopefully share some of those details. Uh, let's start off right now, though, with sort of where you're at in, in, in this space and time. You're the treasurer of the California Republican Party. You were just reelected. Uh, talk to me about what that job is and, and what is your role now? Uh, so um, I, I was just elected to a third term, which is unprecedented. Wow. Um, normally, um, treasurer can only serve two two year terms, mm -hmm. um, but our bylaws were changed um, during COVID to allow the current board to seek a third term. So uh, we had to all face election and I was actually just reelected to my third term with 86 percent of the vote. I was the highest vote getter. Uh, at our convention. When I was elected to treasurer um, four years ago for the first time, I only won by two votes. I was, uh, you know, I, I faced a very formidable uh, person who was endorsed by Kevin McCarthy and a lot of the establishment people. I had more grassroots kind of support. Um, but, you know, over the years, uh, as I've served as a volunteer, um, I've gained the support of the establishment people. Um, so, you know, yeah, so I, I had 86% of the vote. So, um, congratulations. Yeah, That's great. Thanks. Yeah. You know, so basically, I mean, I serve as the, as a fiduciary, I have multiple staff members in the treasury department. We have a full-time controller, for example, you know, various people who do the data entry and the reporting and the depositing. So I oversee all of that. It's rather complex, um, because of the election laws regarding, um, federal money versus non-federal money, non-federal, non-candidate money, Levin money. Um, you know, so the federal law has prohibited corporate money from federal elections um, for over a hundred years. So that's why we have to keep money separate in different accounts, depending on who it came from and in what amount. And um, it's, it's very complex. I think we have 13 bank accounts that I oversee mm -hmm. uh, and the California Republican Party works very closely with our legislative partners in uh, the state assembly, in the state senate, uh, the congressional delegation. We're very closely with Speaker McCarthy. We're very pleased to have him as speaker. He's been a great partner for us. 
Um, you know, so so I, I serve in a fiduciary capacity and I probably spend, you know, on a typical week, I probably spend five hours just doing routine um, stuff, you know, reviewing invoices before payments are authorized, looking at batches of money coming in. Um, very closely involved in, you know, operational aspects, you know, how much are we paying for insurance? Uh, what are the utilities? What are what are the cost of our employee benefits? Uh, how much are we paying uh, for data? Um, you know, pretty boring stuff for most people, but I try to make sure that the money that we do raise is spent well and is, um, you know, consistent with our budget. And uh, we're, it's really a team effort and uh, we have a great team. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be on our board of directors. We have um, like 23 people on our board of directors um, and it's a balance of grassroots people and, um, you know, senators, assembly members, uh, congressmen are all on our board. Uh, the famous Harmeet Dillon, for example, who many people know from her appearances on Fox News, the, the constitutional attorney, she's on our board of directors. So we really have a very um, great group of people. And it's really a pleasure to work with them and to serve. So you're keeping them in line financially, making sure that um, everything is working well and you get to play this role statewide. Let's let's transition there to what's happening nationally. Donald Trump, obviously former president. A lot of people thought he was done. He was gone. You know, he's he's been arrested and charged and he's facing all of these issues that are coming up and you know everyone sort of thinks oh he's done he's gone with but maybe not you know he might be the candidate for president again can you talk about what your take is on on trump and desantis and you know who's going to get it and, yeah. and where, where, where do good republicans go and you know for the next election i can tell you that donald trump definitely has a core group of followers um, within the Republican Party, you know, amongst the activists, as well as, um, you know, just the man, man on the street, um, Trump supporters. There are some people that are really hardcore uh, Trump supporters. I don't believe, though, that they're the majority, mm. um, particularly here in California. Um, I think a lot of the people who are more strategically minded are thinking that someone like Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, would be a better choice as the Republican nominee, you know, more likely to win the swing states. It's all about the electoral math, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, who's going to get the most votes. You've got to win states that were lost last time, like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, um, Arizona, right? So when I look at those states, I see Donald Trump is having pretty high negatives. He's got pretty high negatives here in California amongst the, you know, the, 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 the non-Republican voters. Um, so I think... Uh, DeSantis would strategically be a better choice. Um, you know, we can't have uh, four more years of this Biden type of administration. I, I hesitate to call it a Biden administration because I don't really think he knows much about what's really going on. So it's, you know, you've got Biden as a figurehead, but all these people that are behind uh, the scenes that are running the show, um, you know, I, America is really hurting uh, and we need we need to have a change. We need to have Republicans in the White House. So let's talk about that. What's what are the issues for Republicans uh, going into the next election cycle? Uh, obviously, not you know you you want to run as you know Biden is out of touch. Biden doesn't know what's going on. Uh, you know he's a shadow president. 
obviously you make Biden the bad guy and you run somebody else who's well, there, there are issues. I mean, I think, I think what are the have, issues, though? We have to speak to the issues that Americans care about that are impacting people's daily lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like just the cost of living, just the economy, you know, how expensive everything's become, uh, per, you know, housing in particular uh, on the Central Coast. But all over America, um, people are really struggling to put food on the table. I and mean, the price of groceries is astronomical everywhere. Uh, the price of gasoline, uh, you know, particularly here in California, where we're paying, you know, close to five dollars a gallon, but it's high all over. Uh, people are really struggling. Interest rates have risen, uh, makes mortgages more expensive. If people have credit card debt, makes that more expensive. Um, and I think really, you know, it all starts with energy. One of the first things that Biden did was he canceled the Keystone Pipeline, right? So that's one of many, many ways in which um, the Biden administration has made the production of energy more expensive. Of course, um, you know, the situation with Russia and Ukraine uh, has also put pressure on energy prices in Europe, which tends to, you know, have a ripple effect here. But energy is a component of everything. So when you make energy more expensive, you make everything more expensive. So that, I mean, I think that's the first thing um, that I would address. Um, you know, and I think, you know, how we're dealing with China, how we're dealing with Russia. Um, I think things were a lot better in America when Trump was president, you know, with all of his um, failings, I think his foreign policy actually was pretty darn effective in terms of having the respect uh, uh, throughout the world, uh, having stability throughout the world. Um, you know, Biden's a weak president and our adversaries, they sense that and they seize upon that. Mm. So that's got to change. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things you judge a president by, right? I don't know who said that, but you get through a period of no war, no conflict. Um, that's a good thing. And then obviously this Russia-Ukraine thing is is terrible. Um, do you think it would have started if Trump was president? Do you think um, Russia would have done what it did if, if Trump was still in charge? I don't think so. I think they, um, you know, would see Trump as being too unpredictable and they'd be afraid uh, to overplay their hand. Um, you know, Trump's a deal maker. He probably would have found some way to uh, make some sort of a deal. Um, but no, I mean, you know, Biden um, doesn't doesn't uh, relay that to our foreign adversaries and they're taking advantage of us. Yeah. You mentioned housing is one of the issues that everyday Americans are really concerned about. Obviously, in California, we have the highest uh, housing prices in the country and we have the state demand from um, Newsom and, and uh, you know, uh, the legislature build more, build more, making it easier for developers to build more, no parking in many cases, taller in many cases, uh, minimizing the amount of local review uh, that cities and counties can have. And this this debate, right? Like, are we ever going to build enough housing for everybody who wants to be able to buy something or rent or live in California? Um, or, you know, do we need to reconsider sort of like, how are we dealing with this thing? And, and because there's no way, no one can buy anything. Nobody can. You know, the state is totally on the wrong track right now. You know, Carpinteria, uh, I moved to Carpinteria from Los Angeles in the, the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to get out of the big city and live in a wonderful small town, uh, you know, safe and clean with friendly people. Um, and, you know, I think 
the vast majority of people who live in Carpinteria want that too. They want to keep that small town charm, you know. So here comes the state basically saying that the local control um, is going to go away and that Carpinteria is going to be forced to just accept all these things that the state wants to do, you know, like it's one size fit all. So I, I think that's the wrong approach. I really believe in local control. Um, there are places in the state where communities want lots of growth. Carpentry is not one of those, you know, Santa Barbara is not one of those, Goleta is not one of those. So, um, you know, let, let them build in other places where the locals want it. And I think, you know, housing, housing is tough. Um, California is a beautiful place. We've got great weather, uh, particularly along the coast, you know, so will housing ever be cheap along the coast? You know, probably not. Um, you know, <laughs> there's, there's only so much land, right? Like when you're on this little edge of the Pacific. Um, but there are some costs, some, some factors that drive up the cost. You know, the the cost of building is is like double in California what it is in other places in the state. You know, between the actual construction cost, um, the process is expensive, right? To, to permit and um, develop housing is extremely expensive. A lot of communities have developmental impact fees that raise the cost, right? Before you've even built anything, you've got to pay the government all this money. So all that um, increases the cost of uh, housing, right? I'm involved in uh, building apartment units in Indiana, part of an LLC uh, with John Cox, who ran for governor a couple of times in California. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're basically paying less than $200,000 per unit in Indiana mm -hmm. to develop housing for, you know, normal folks. Um, California, it's, you know, closer to like $700,000 per unit, right? And it's like, why is it so expensive? You know, in addition to the land being more expensive, of course, you have all these other costs that drive up the cost for the consumer. And then right now with interest rates being so high, uh, you know, why are interest rates so high? Well, the government borrowed all this money, printed all this money. Um, the Fed's trying to tamp down inflation. So, you know, they've raised interest rates and that makes it even harder uh, for people uh, to buy, right? Because your um, your ratios as far as how much income you need to afford a certain monthly payment, those are, are uh, much worse when interest rates are higher. So it's really hitting people hard. Um, one of the things that I had emphasized when I was on the uh, City County Affordable Housing Task Force as a council member for Carpinteria was reducing the uncertainty. You know, it's one thing to have rules, um, but it's another thing to not know what the rules are. And when you have really like a capricious process where the developers don't know how many units they can build on an acre or how tall or, you know, how many parking spaces they need, right? Like when it changes all the time, because now it's got to go before ARB and planning and maybe gets appealed to the city council and people are like, well, you know, yeah, it, you know, it meets the rules, but I don't like it. Or, well, let's just, you know, delay it. It's like the developers go crazy, you know, and, and then they don't want to invest their other, like, and I'm saying I'm investing in Indiana. I own a number of um, units in Ventura County that are mm -hmm. rental units, but, mm -hmm. but I've decided to diversify into Indiana rather than invest more money locally because my money has a better return in Indiana than it has in California. Right. Mm -hmm. So and then also as a landlord, I can tell you that um, the laws are extremely unfriendly to landlords in terms of uh, the liability associated with being a landlord and maintaining uh, what's called habitability. So tenants can very, very easily allege a lack of habitability 
Uh, and then landlords are just sitting ducks, you know, and then a lot of people, uh, I was fortunate that we didn't have tenants um, get behind on the rent during COVID, but a lot of landlords were just destroyed by that, where um, government said, hey, tenants don't have to pay, but the landlord still has to, of course, pay their property taxes, their homeowners dues, their utility, you know, utilities, repairs, maintenance. So, you know, when you do that to to landlords, landlords tend to invest their money somewhere else. So, you know, that makes the housing uh, situation worse. So I think we need more people in the legislature who understand the housing market, understand business, understand development, uh, and not so many people that have never, ever had anything other than a government job in their life. You know, we've got so many people in the legislature that have no real world experience building anything, mm-hmm. nothing, right? Yeah. Um, that's the disconnect. You can't solve problems when you have a group of legislators who have no idea how to solve a problem never solved a problem in their life yeah when your entire existence as a professional consists of a guaranteed check from the government Mm -hmm. you look at things a little differently than when you have to be in the private sector and hustle to actually make sure you get the income otherwise you're not going to get paid and exactly you have to provide a service that people want in order to get paid and obviously we know that development is very expensive there's a perception i think that that all developers are billionaires and that uh they must have a ton of money but payoffs of big development projects take a long long time they involve loans from the bank nobody's putting down cash to just buy these things and so yes there is a payoff and it is an investment and it does take time and yes they they have more money than many of us but it isn't as though they are uh trying to uh, gouge people they have their own financial demands as well and so i think that's part of the the conversation although this trend with rent evictions i think that's a that's something that needs to be addressed you know these these corporations buying these old apartment buildings and evicting people and then raising it to market rent and those people are left out you know we're seeing that in isla vista and i think those corporate people that's that's an issue i think the legislature may want to address but a lot of the develop like you you're not like some big billionaire you own some property right you know so every little bit matters um i want to ask you greg i i uh, was on your facebook page and i saw you had quite the the medical issue medical scare recently with covid and i was I sort of you you know i saw the word ventilator i'm like holy cow Can you walk us through what you experienced? Yeah, I I had a very um, crazy situation. You know, I've I've been very, very healthy uh, most of my life, fortunately. Um, You know, careful to eat well and exercise and avoid um, things that are known health risks. I I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't eat meat. uh, I I eat fish. uh, I was strictly vegetarian for many, many years. Um, and, uh, I've also never been an anti-vax person. You know, I got all my immunizations growing up. Um, most, re- you know, I, I went to Brazil about 16 years ago. And before I went, I went to a travel medicine doctor and, you know, got all the shots for typhoid and yellow fever and hepatitis and, you know, this and that. So I've, I've always been very much in the mainstream when it comes to vaccinations. And when COVID first hit, uh, I strongly encouraged uh, my older relatives, uh, you know, in their 80s to get vaccinated. 
I insisted that my spouse, who has a number of pre-existing conditions, younger than me, but has a number of pre-existing conditions, get vaccinated. Uh, anybody around me that had conditions, I was like, yeah, let me help you to you know, sign up to get your shot. I, I signed up a number of people to get their shot. And I was in no hurry to get mine because I thought, well, you know what? I'm only 59 years old at the time. Um, I'm very healthy. I mean, if I were to get exposed, I probably would be mildly symptomatic, you know, if, if at all is what I, I thought. And I thought these other, these other people, uh, need to be able to go ahead of me first because they are older. They have, um, conditions why, you know, they should go, I, I should not jump in line before these people, they should all go get their shot. And then, you know, data started to come out indicating that there were adverse reactions to the vaccines. Uh, some people were getting blood clots, there were strokes, there were deaths. I became aware of a number of close friends of mine who had immediate friends and relatives who dropped dead within days of getting that shot. And I started to question whether or not it was safe. Um, and there is something called the Vaccine Adverse Event Reaction System, the VAERS system. Uh, and if you go in there, you find out that there, at this point, have been well over 40,000 Americans that have dropped dead uh, from the shot. Um, so I became aware of that data. And I thought, you know, I, I guess I, I probably just won't get it. I don't need it uh, and I won't get it. And I was just very careful to, um, you know, maintain social distancing and sanitize services, surfaces. I bought a bunch of ultraviolet sterilizers for the office. Um, you know, wipe things down all the time, um, very, very careful. But in the fall of 2021, um, after attending a Republican convention in San Diego, mm -hmm. um, a few days later, I started to feel sick. Mm -hmm. So I went home, um, arranged to get a COVID test at a, like a drive-through um, testing center, tested positive. I just felt like I had a bad flu. Um, Within a few days, um, I was very, very weak and was actually, but, but was um, like on, on a Sunday, I was thinking I should go to work today uh, because it's Sunday and no one else is at the office and I feel a little bit better and I can go catch up, but I, I fainted that morning. So I went to the ER, actually I cracked my nose open. I went to the ER and they stitched me up and they shamed me for being unvaccinated and they just told me to go home and keep an eye on my oxygen. And I had heard that people were getting monoclonal antibodies and were getting much better immediately with the monoclonals. And I asked them for that. And they said, nope, you're not old enough or sick enough for those monoclonals. Uh, and I was like, well, but I'd really like to get them anyway. And they said, well, you don't meet our guidelines, so we can't give them to you. Just go home. Mm -hmm. So I went home. Uh, a couple of days later, I heard that I could get the monoclonals at Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara. So I had my spouse drive me there. When I got to cottage, they said, your oxygen is 80. You're extremely, you know, eight, normal is like 96 to hundred percent is normal oxygen saturation. So I was at 80. They said, you're, you're too sick for the monoclonals. We need to admit you yes. immediately. You know, you're very, very sick. Um, so I was like, oh, okay. You know, um, and they wanted to give me remdesivir. I didn't really know much about it at the time. Um, I did five days of IV remdesivir didn't get any better um, on day. And, I, and I, I was in the, like the regular hospital room for like 10 days and I had my laptop with me and I was doing tax work from the hospital bed. I actually logged, uh, I think about 12 billable hours during the 10 days I was in the hospital um, two days 
Uh, so so on, on uh, October 15th of 2021, they came into my room and they said, the doctor says that he wants to transfer you to the ICU and put you on a ventilator because you're um, needing more oxygen than we can provide in this setting. And I'd been on this like high flow oxygen thing, like with the nasal cannula and it like just blew a lot of oxygen up my nose. And, but I've been sitting there working, you know, and like um, two days before they transferred me to the ICU, I actually did four billable hours of, you know, tax work remotely um, using my laptop. So before they, they, they wheeled me into the ICU, um, I knew that, you know, your chance of surviving the ventilator was like 50-50, but I felt like I didn't really have any choice. I was weak. I wasn't, you know, going to fight anybody. I was just going to do what the doctors wanted to do. I trusted the doctors. So they put me out completely um, using like, you know, fentanyl, propofol, Versed. They put me out. I don't remember, you know, having a tube inserted or, or anything, but I was on a ventilator for 20 days in the ICU. Wow. Um, I lost 40 pounds oh, um, during that time. Uh, when I woke up, I really had no idea where I was. Uh, it took days before I knew where I was or what day it was, you know, they'd come in every couple hours and ask me my name and my date of birth. And if I knew where I was and what day it was, and it's like, I could do the name and the date of birth, but I, you know, when they'd ask me where I was, I, I was like, I don't know, you know, do you know what day it is? No. You know, do you know what month it is? No. It, it literally took like three or four days to come out of that deep, you know, medically induced coma. And then I, I couldn't walk, you know, all my muscles had atrophied when they put you on a ventilator they use um, drugs to paralyze you so that the machine can breathe for you, right? So it's like you're completely sedated, you're paralyzed. Um, so my muscles had atrophied to where I couldn't even stand up out of bed. It took two nurses and a device called a steady to get me up out of bed, you know, into a standing position. And then a few seconds later, like I had to lie down again, I was too weak. And it, it took 10 days uh, out of the ICU before I could go home. And when mm -hmm. I went home, I had to have a walker. You know, I, I could I couldn't take three or four steps. You know, I I couldn't go anywhere without that walker. But I went back to work the next day because I have my own business, and I thought, well, I've got a month and a half worth of mail sitting on my desk. Um, I could open the mail. I think I can open the mail and sort the junk mail from the good mail. You know, so that's where I started. And you know, ten days after that, I started to go to the gym again. I had to use a walker to go into twenty four hour fitness, and I could barely um, do you know, a few reps using the lowest setting on the machines, but I'm like, you know, I'm just going to force myself. Uh, I'm going to just do what I can. I'm going to, you know, try to do every machine on the lowest setting. I did like two loops the first time I went, you know, three days later, went back and did it again. And it took months to rebuild my strength. I, I, um, I needed the walker for like a couple weeks before I was able to start walking on my own again without a walker. Um, you know, mentally I was a bit foggy, you know, for a while, it was hard to concentrate and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to, um, do tax season, right? It's like, I get out of the hospital on November 18th of 2021. And I was worried that I wouldn't be able to have a normal tax season. I thought, you know, will I even be able to do half my normal workload? Well, thank God I was able to do 130% of my normal workload. Somehow I was able to recover my mental and physical faculties to the point where I was able to have a normal you know, and I work 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week for months mm -hmm. during tax season. So I'm just so busy. Um, so that was really a miracle that I was able to recover that way. But what I, you know, I started to wonder, well, first of all, like, why did I get so sick? Uh, mm -hmm. What made me so sick? And which treatments 
you know, were effective, you know, like did the remdesivir help me or hurt me? Uh, and, you know, was the ventilator really a good idea? So I started doing the research and what I find found out in a nutshell is that our federal government working with the pharmaceutical industry and using big media, um, they pushed drugs that were expensive, patented drugs that were extremely inexpensive, but ineffective. Um, and other drugs like ivermectin, which have a long history of being safe, um, those drugs were poo-pooed. You know, they were disparaged. People were told that if you take ivermectin, you know, it's horse wormer and uh, horse to wormer and you're, you know, you're going to get poisoned by, you know, those. That's those what CNN, that's what CNN told me. It was yeah, a horse like yeah. dewormer. Yeah. Drugs that ivermectin, safe and effective ivermectin was basically banned. You know, you couldn't get a prescription for it. If you had a prescription, you couldn't get it filled. But um, there are about 93 studies of, um, you know, like, like a hundred thousand patients that have been done all over the world, proving that ivermectin is safe and effective for COVID-19, uh, especially when used early. Um, there are about, at this point, about a million people in the United States who are dead now from COVID. And I, I would say it's safe to say that at least 300,000 of those people are dead today because our federal government denied those people safe and effective and inexpensive early treatment. And instead, they gave the hospitals financial incentives to only administer remdesivir. So like, why was I given remdesivir instead of ivermectin? Well, because the federal government told the hospital that they would get financial incentives. So first of all, the remdesivir is about $7,000 a dose. So I was given about $37,000 worth of remdesivir at Cottage Hospital. Mm -hmm. The hospital received a 20% bonus on my entire stay. Now, the bill that I got from Cottage Hospital was over $900,000. And the cash discount price uh, was about $640,000. So the, the, um, they ended up getting paid 20% bonus on top of that. So they were paid about $740,000 uh, because they gave me remdesivir. And then also um, under the um, CARES Act, the hospital faces zero potential liability. So they have no liability for negligence or anything um, when they use these drugs that are mandated by the federal government. So it's like, hey, you know, if we give Greg remdesivir, we get to, you know, sell him a very expensive product and we get a 20% bonus, not just on the remdesivir, but on the entire stay. Uh, and we have no liability. Greg can't sue us for having given him the wrong thing, right? So it's like, well, how does that happen? Well, essentially, the drug companies, the huge drug companies like Pfizer and Moderna, they have captured the federal regulatory apparatus. So the federal government agencies that are supposed to protect us from all of this, they helped help to push this through. And the media companies like CNN, who you mentioned, and you know Facebook and Twitter, um, they made sure that people didn't hear about vaccine injuries. They made sure that people didn't know that ivermectin was cheap, safe, and effective. And the hospitals, you know, like when I went to the, the ER in Ventura, when I, I fainted and cracked my nose open, they, they told me to go home. Instead of giving me ivermectin, they told me to go home, right? Two days later, I show up at, at Cottage, and instead of them giving me ivermectin, they put me on remdesivir. Ten days later, I'm on a ventilator. Um, 
you know, the ventilator is controversial too. You know, I'm not sure whether or not I really needed to be on a ventilator. Um, the ventilators, that was another covered countermeasure under the CARES Act, where if hospitals put people on ventilators, they got more money. So there were a lot of very perverse financial incentives. Now, the people at Cottage were wonderful. I'm, I'm not I'm not suing Cottage Hospital. I'm not saying that any of those were bad people. I think everybody there met well. They cared for me well. They were very kind to me. They took very good care of me. They fed me well. They bathed me. They took very good care of me. But I think the treatments that they gave me were misguided because the federal government basically told them, you know, gave them incentive to give me treatments that were ultimately ineffective and dangerous. And, and I'm just lucky to be alive because... I'm involved with some survivors groups of other people who went through what I went through. And, and, and more of those people are actually widows and widowers, mm -hmm. uh, of people who did not make it through. And um, there's a huge body of evidence to support what I'm saying. And um, there are some lawsuits. Um, there's actually a class action lawsuit against um, Gilead, the maker of remdesivir due to their false and misleading claims regarding the effectiveness of their product and uh, covering up uh, the danger. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people had kidney failure who received remdesivir. If they had kidney problems and were given remdesivir, they ended up dead. So fortunately, I had good kidneys, didn't die. Um, you know, well, I mean, it's, it's a horrible situation when you think about hundreds of thousands of dead people at the hands of our own government, the vaccine injuries, the lack of help for people who are suffering vaccine injuries, the cover up. Um, it, it's just horrible trying to force people to be vaccinated with an experimental product, you know, especially the young people. You know, I, I think it's one thing for the older people. You know, I, I don't regret my mom or my spouse being vaccinated or, you know, my 88 year old uncle. But we have forced young people to be vaccinated, young men uh, who now have myocarditis. Right. And it's like there was no upside for them. They weren't going to get sick and die from covid. But now a lot of them are dead or have lifelong, very serious heart injuries. And they're going to be, you know, living, if, if they continue to survive, they'll live with that their whole life, having these heart problems because they were forced to be injected, you know? So there's let me a ask lot you, of stuff that makes no sense. Let me ask you a question. How did you know that there was this bonus um, if they gave you this treatment? Is it, I mean, it doesn't say that on the bill, does it? Or, I mean, how do you know that if they give you this treatment, there's this discount that that for them. How do you know that? That, that information's out there. Um, it's public information. Um, I don't know how to tell you, like right off the top, of me, like where exactly you find that, but um, okay, that there are in fact these bonuses. So it's not it's um, not something that private insurance pays the bonus on. But if these are Medicare patients. Um, my coverage was actually my my costs were actually paid for by the federal government. So um, many years ago, uh, after Obama came into play, Obamacare was put into uh, place. I lost my Anthem Blue Shield insurance. Remember, the, if you like your doctor, you can keep it. If you like your insurance, you can keep it. Well, I actually lost mine. Right. I was canceled. And uh, when I went to sign up for another policy, it was twice the price. So I started looking into health sharing ministries and we ended up signing up with Liberty HealthShare. So we've had health coverage through Liberty HealthShare. It's technically not insurance. Legally, it doesn't count as insurance, but I'm exempt from having health insurance because I belong to a health sharing ministry, uh, Liberty HealthShare. So I thought Liberty HealthShare was gonna pay for my hospital stay. 
Um, they sent me an email telling me that, you know, they'd received my notification that I was in the hospital. I told them I was in the hospital. They said, don't worry, you're covered. They sent me an email. I was expecting them to pay for it. When I got out, I found out that the federal government had paid for it because of a program through uh, the Health Resource Services Administration. If you have COVID and you don't have insurance, the federal government will pay for your care. So the federal government, you know, I, I've got the, the the bill from Cottage, the $900,000 $900, retail price, the $620,000 you know, cash discount price. And then I saw the payment that the federal government made on my behalf to Cottage Hospital. And it, oh, I included, see. it included that 20%. Bonus. So I know it happened in my case. And if you if you do a little online research, you'll very quickly find out that there is a 20% bonus um, you know, for all the care that was paid for through the federal government. So that would, be, that would include the Medicare patients, so anybody over 65, um, and then people in my situation who technically did not have insurance. I mean, I'm very grateful to the federal government to, for having paid that bill. If they had not paid that bill, Liberty HealthShare would have paid that bill. Yeah. So a, a couple of things. Um, your experience is your experience. It's what you endured. You overcame it. Anybody who knows you knows you're in, you know, you've always been incredibly fit. You know, you take care of yourself. So, you know, if COVID did that to you, you know, that's, that's, that's incredible. Cause you, um, you know, you're a very healthy guy, uh, you know? And so, so there's that, but as far as the COVID vaccine, like you would agree, hopefully, or maybe not hopefully, but I mean, we know there, there, that there are people who like your circumstance. Okay. But would you agree in general the COVID vaccine saved, you know, lives, um, you know, for, you know, it was a good thing. It was a positive thing. It saved lives, particularly with elderly people, people with. Yeah. Well, it's a mixed systems. Bag. So, so, I would, yeah. so I would say yes and no. So I would say on the one hand, it has the effect of reducing serious disease, hospitalization and death from COVID. Yeah. But at the same time, it increases the risk of serious disease hospitalization and death from blood clots and other cardiovascular complications. Um, there is some evidence of increase in cancers, uh, uncontrollable cancers. It has an impact on the immune system. So, so it's like, you know, yes, the short-term impact is it reduces serious disease, hospitalization, and death from COVID. It may have prevented me from getting so sick. We don't know whether I would have gotten sick anyway, but it, you know, it may have, had I been vaccinated, maybe I would not have had that happen to me, my experience of 44 days in the hospital. But at the same time, I might've been one of those people who got a blood clot and died from a stroke days after being in injected. So you know, so the risk is, is, you know, it's a relative risk. And I think each person is different and it's hard to predict uh, sure. what's going to happen to whom. Um, I, there's quite a bit of evidence that there were a lot of bad batches. The quality control tends to be pretty inconsistent, um, you know, more so I think with the Pfizer and the mRNA uh, than the Johnson and Johnson. So, you know, it's like pick your poison. Do you, do you want to die from COVID or do you want to die from a, a, a blood clot? Um, I think if you're an older person, if you've got the pre-existing conditions, you're, you're, you're probably better off getting the the uh, injection. We don't know the long-term effects. It's going to be years before we know the long-term effects. Maybe the answer is it's it's you know worse for everybody in the long term. But um, 
No, I, I would agree that the vaccine is a good thing for older people, people with pre-existing conditions. It's it's a worse thing for kids, young adults. Uh, Scandinavia actually has banned it for anybody under 50. Mm. You know, they have government health care throughout Scandinavia. And um, I think Denmark was the first to say, you know what, we're, you're, you're not getting this if you're under 50 unless you have a real special circumstance and need an exemption, you're, other, you're otherwise not going to get it because we don't think it's good for you. Yeah. Um, I want to move on because I got a couple other things I want to talk about. I mean, I'm triple vaccinated and I'm pro pro vaccine for sure. Pro COVID vaccine. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying just to share some truth with people. No, no, and no. It's, it's you, fascinating. I actually, I actually got vaccinated with a couple other vaccines. I went and had a two. I was going to ask you that next. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not anti-vax. I just had a Shingrix uh, vaccination. Um, I had my first shot at the end of December and I had my second shot about four weeks ago. You know, so I, I'm I'm not anti-vax. I think each person needs to make a decision in consultation with a trusted doctor, but but have the facts. You know, it's just let us have the facts so that we can decide. Don't don't hide information from us. Don't uh, you know? I mean, there are a lot of people that are accused of misinformation or disinformation. The fact is, is that right now it's our government. And these pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are doing the misinformation and disinformation. And are you COVID vaccinated now or? I'm uh, not. I'm not. You know, I mean, I I have robust immunity having um, been so sick. You know, they they say that if you have if you get very, very sick, you probably have a lot of natural immunity. Now, of course, there are variants, right? Just like with the seasonal influenza. That's another one where. you know, you get vaccinated one year, you're not immune the next year. But I, I'll tell you, I have a big supply of ivermectin. I got a ton of ivermectin, uh-huh. right? Uh, and you need quite a bit of it. Somebody my size, I'm, I'm about 196 pounds. I need 50 milligrams a day for five days, you know, to treat a, an actual COVID infection. That's how much you need. You know, so it's like, good luck getting that, right? Where are you going to get, you know, where I get it from? I get it from Brazil. Uh-huh. My spouse is Brazilian. So when we go to Brazil, we bring back ivermectin. I've got, I got a bunch in the trunk of my car outside right now for a friend. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, I'm glad, I, I'm glad that you pulled through and, um, you know, you made it and you're so fit and healthy. Maybe that probably was part of it. You were able to do that. Hey, I wanted to ask you uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, you were on the Carpinteria City Council and you are, I don't even want to use the word openly. I don't know what that means in 2023, but you know, at the time you were a, uh, openly gay city council member and you're a Republican and that those things tend to collide a lot in terms of politics. And we have moral conservatives and then we have fiscal conservatives and there's people in the middle. And so I was wondering if you could talk, Greg, about being a gay out council member back when you were first elected and back when you were involved, how did you yeah, deal well, it's with that? It's changed a lot. It's changed yeah. a lot. You know, I'll give you a, a measurement um, of where we are today. So at this last convention uh, where I was reelected as treasurer with the 86% of the vote, right? These are Republican activists that are voting, right? So only 14% found some reason not to vote for me. And I would say, you know, a lot of them knew uh, my sexual orientation. Um, So it was obviously a non-issue for a lot of those people. Now at that same convention, that same day, 
there was a vote uh, uh, whether or not log cabin Republicans, it's a gay Republican organization, should have a permanent charter, just like Republican Women Federated or College Republicans or Young Republicans or any of a number of other Republican groups that are chartered at the state party level. Uh, if you don't have a permanent charter, you have to come up for renewal every two years and you know keep demonstrating that you're a real organization and all that. So the vote was yes, give Log Cabin a permanent charter. It was a 70% vote. Now, some people don't think that any organization should have a permanent charter. So some of the people who voted no didn't vote no because they're homophobic. They voted no because they just don't think anybody should have a permanent charter. Everybody should be on a short leash. Um, but Log Cabin got 70%. So I think that tells you something. Um, now I, I don't think, you know, I, I think, you know, 12 years ago, it might've been 40% or something like that, you know, so we've come a long way and I was involved. Um, it was about, well, it was about eight years ago that Log Cabin became a chartered organization at the state party level. And that was a big deal, you know, because there were people that didn't think that that should happen, but it happened and it, it you know, it happened by a, a decent margin i think it was about 55 percent about eight years ago that we were able to charter um so the republican party's changed a lot i think you know today there are obviously people who you know think that it's immoral uh and that you know gay people shouldn't be allowed to participate in you know in a, a meaningful way in, in party politics uh you know shouldn't teach school shouldn't hold elected office there are people who think that but I think I think well over 70% of Republicans today don't see any reason why a gay person, lesbian person, transgender person shouldn't be allowed all the same rights and responsibilities as anybody else in America. Uh, so it's changed. You know, I don't think people realize how much it's changed, um, you know, in the last decade, but it's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel like you're a little bit on an island? Because on one hand progressive liberal people you know they'll hear you talk about covid and they'll hear you talk about trump and, and conservative politics and desantis and they'll derail you right they will just say you know you're a terrible person on the other hand though you share this this thing that is a very foundational fundamental right that a lot of progressives are fighting for which is you know equality for the lgbtq plus community and and so do you ever feel like you're not you know fully accepted by that group because you're republican oh, uh yeah you know oh, and yeah. How, how do you deal with that because on that issue you're you're i mean you should be united and bonded it's a common struggle regardless of your party affiliation right yeah there definitely are people that are like well you know how can you be gay and republican you know mm -hmm. how dare you Right? How dare you do that? How can you possibly do that? Um, but you know, I I'm an American first, um, above uh, above my sexual orientation. You know, and it's like I think everybody is free to think for themselves. Just because you're gay or black or Jewish or you know whatever um, you identify with, and you know we're complex. You know, I think it's wrong just to try to put people on in, in labels. You know, all black people think this. It's like no, all black people don't think that. You know, black people think all kinds of things, right? Gay people think all kinds of things. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize each person as a unique individual and and to be respectful that people have different life experiences, different views that shape uh, their politics, that shape everything about them. And, and you know, we should respect that and celebrate that, and not 
um, you know, insist that people think a certain way because of some label that we think uh, should be put on them. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people that have decided not to patronize my business or not vote for me or, you know, whatever, um, because of my sexual orientation, because of my conservative, I mean, we have, we have people that, I, I mean, I think, you know, like we, you talk about city council, when I was elected to city council in 2002, I think there were a lot of people that didn't know that were on the Republican side that were dismayed that they voted for a gay person, that a gay person had been elected. And I think they, many of them regretted having voted for me. Um, you know, and then you've got the people on the left that think that I shouldn't be Republican, that I shouldn't hold the views that I hold. Um, there are people that don't want to do business with me because I supported Trump because I went to the Trump inauguration, you know. Um, anyway, you know, I, I, I try to listen and be respectful of all people's views. And I think, Amer you know, that's what America is about is the freedom to be who you want to be, to be the best person that you can be. Can you share a little bit about your story? Were you, were you out always out or did you make a, did you sort of live a certain way publicly out of political concerns or you mentioned 20 years ago, some people didn't know. Can you just talk a little bit about your. Yeah. I mean, I, out story? You know, um, I did my best to be straight. You know, I, I tried to be straight, um, dated women. Um, you know, um, I drank a lot of alcohol um, early and, you know, until I was in my mid twenties um, probably as a way to, you know, cover up my struggles. Um, but then, you know, I, I stopped drinking when I was 25 and tried to just be more honest with myself in terms of who I was and, you know, started to admit to myself that I was attracted to men. And I thought, you know, for a while I was attracted to both. I dated men, I dated women, you know, um, in my, you know, around like the time I was 30. And then I, you know, I kind of came to realization that I, I really was more attracted to men than to women. Uh, and then started, you know, to date more, more men and less women. And um, I'd been with my spouse, uh, who is a man, um, for 16 years. We're legally married for about four and a half years. We've been registered domestic partners for, you know, over 15 years. Um, you know, so that's who I am. And, you know, some people have no idea. Um, I, I guess some people would say they think I'm kind of straight acting, so they might meet me and not know. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, all kinds of people know, and it's obviously not held me back in terms of my professional career, my political career. Uh, you know, I, I am who I am. So that's the way it is. Great. Um, last thing you moved from Carpinteria and now you're in Ventura. And can you talk about your decision to to do that. I know you mentioned you own some properties in Ventura and stuff, but it was something greater at play, right? Yeah. So I had a wonderful house in Carpinteria for 24 years. Uh, I had bought sort of kind of like, you know, the worst house in, in the nice neighborhood kind of a thing where it was like a disaster of a house needed, uh, needed a lot of work. And one of the things I do is I, I planted a wonderful garden. Uh, I, I created a year round fruit garden that was on the parade of uh, green buildings a couple of times. Um, 
you know, for uh, with a sustainability project, showing the edible landscape, the you know the vermiculture, the composting, uh, wonderful garden that I created. And we were um, had a lot of privacy. It was back at the you know end of a cul-de-sac, pie-shaped lot, very large lot. Uh, we backed up onto um, the city limit, and on the other side of the city limit was Ed Van Wingerden's 15 acres of greenhouses. And for the first you know, out of the 24 years, you know, for the first 18 or 19 years, we lived in harmony, uh, you know, as Ed grew anthuriums and daisies and things. But um, Ed started growing marijuana. And, you know, initially there was some smell and they installed what's called an odor control system, the buyer system. And it, essentially they were spraying soap and oil into the air 24-7 to mask the smell of the pot. And my spouse has asthma. I was telling you earlier about the pre-existing conditions, right? Like why I said my spouse should get vaccinated. Well, one of the reasons is my spouse has asthma, pretty bad asthma. Um, so he was taking medication, you know, the inhalers, uh, the pills, the injections, trying to manage the asthma, but it was getting worse and worse, you know, and these medications have side effects. They're expensive. And, you know, it took us a while to really figure out for sure what it was because, you know, it's like, well, you know, maybe it's the stuff growing in the garden, you know, maybe it's the, uh, Pollen, yes. yeah, yeah. You know, it could be, this could be that, you know, and then we'd, we'd leave home and he'd get better. We'd come back home, he'd get worse, you know? And so we kind of figured it out that it just had to be probably the soap and oil, not so much the marijuana in and of itself, but the soap and the oil. And it just got worse and worse. And after about three years of him breathing that stuff, he just, it just was awful. I mean, to see somebody who can't breathe and it's like, okay, do I go get more injections? And then I still can't breathe. It's like, we had to literally evacuate our house. I just said one day, I said, you know what? We're just going to rent another place and move like right now. Mm -hmm. So we rented a place closer to the beach in Carpinteria um, where the air was fresher. And he immediately like, like next day was, was better. Right. And stayed better. Um, we ended up selling the house um but it sold like in you know mid-march in the middle of tax season and by the time i got done with tax season and i could take the time to look for another house the prices had spiked there was very little available this is march of 2021 and we started to you know like well maybe we should live in santa barbara or Goleta or you know whatever my spouse was looking on zillow and and going like well you know there's places in Camarillo where for the price of a house in Carpinteria, you, you get seven acres and a tennis court swimming pool in Camarillo. I'm like, I'm not driving to, to work in Carpinteria from Camarillo, you know, but we started to kind of expand. I, I wanted to stay in car, but we just couldn't find anything. So we ended up finding a house in Ventura. And as you mentioned, I do have rentals in Ventura and my mother and my uncle who are elderly are in, in Orange County. So, you know, kind of like thinking ahead, it's like, well, being a little closer to them, being closer to the rental properties, uh, I can work from home to some extent. So that's what we did. We bought a, a beautiful house in Ventura and, um, you know, it's, it's custom home with ocean and island views, swimming pool, four fireplaces um, for what, you know, you pay for a, a very ordinary house in Carpinteria. So we got a lot more for our money. Um, I miss being able to walk my dog to work in Carpinteria. That was one of the things that I really enjoyed was just going out the front door and walking around the neighborhood and, you know, seeing people that I know, people that have been my neighbors for decades. Um, so now I do commute to Carpinteria three or four times a week, um, you know, work in my office, long days, get in the car, drive back home to Ventura. Um, 
So that's a little different. Um, we ended up, you know, we sued um, Ed Ben Wingerton and some of the other growers. Hmm. And um, we reached a settlement in that case. Um, Ed agreed to install carbon scrubbers. Um, so the goal is basically to clean up the air for the neighborhood um, by having the growers install the state-of-the-art technology, which is the carbon scrubbers, and then to stop spraying the soap and oil into the air. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot, a lot. We weren't the only people suffering health issues. I went door to door throughout the neighborhood and and um, talked with people to find out. And basically, it's like the closer you were to the source the more likely you were to have respiratory issues, you know, whether it's burning eyes, sore throat, cough, you know, more serious stuff like my spouse's asthma. A lot of people are suffering uh, those health issues. So I'm glad that the neighborhood, you know, is getting some relief. Um, I'm, you know, not happy that we had to sell and move. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you've experienced this period where you've been through a lot of adversity and turmoil, personal, and you survived, right? You made it through, you took action, and that's really commendable. And, you know, you're you're in a good place right now. You're rebuilding, and that's really good. I want to let you go. I know we both have some uh, time constraints, but I want to go back to one thing I don't know if we talked about which was you're supporting DeSantis, right? You, you said that he's the viable candidate. So yeah, can we end with that? Talk to me why you think he is the choice for Republicans going into 2024. Yeah, so I mean, you know, there's some talk right now that he may be announcing uh, as early as next week um, his run for president of the United States. Yeah. And I think strategically, I think he's a really good choice. He's done a great job as governor in Florida. And, um, you know, there, there are people that want to see Trump, you know, the nominee again. Uh, I, you know, he may, he may be electable again, maybe not. I just think strategically DeSantis is probably a better choice. Um, it all comes down to the electoral math. You know, it's not a popular vote. It's, it's an electoral vote. And last time Trump lost very important swing states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Nevada. All went for Biden, right? So it's like if you want to win the White House, you got to cobble together enough electoral votes somehow, right? Um, so I think Trump has high negatives um, in a lot of these places, and I just think DeSantis would be more likely to pick up some of these states that were lost mm. by Trump. Um, so I'm right at this moment. I'm trying to network with like-minded people and identify DeSantis supporters within you know, the Republican activists and, you know, put together a network of people throughout all of California uh, who would support DeSantis in their congressional district. The, you know, the, the to win the Republican nomination, you got to get enough delegates, uh, Republican delegates, right? The, the convention is going to be in Wisconsin. Um, you've got to win these delegates and each congressional district in California has three delegates, right? So you've got to win enough congressional districts to win enough delegates in between you know california is having early primary this time our election is the first week of march mm. which is like the super tuesday right oh yeah that's right so whereas in the past we've come in in june when you know to a large extent the race has already been decided you know california is is the most populous state we are a delegate rich state so um the whole nomination is definitely in play and California will play a very large role 
and I am trying to um, right now get as many delegates for DeSantis as possible. Okay. Well, Greg, great conversation. I uh, learned a lot and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your personal story on a number of fronts and uh, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad things are turning around and you're healthy and your, your, your partner, your spouse, your, your husband is doing much better, you know? And so um, it's great to, great to catch up on all these issues. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciated the opportunity to be here. I appreciate your time, Josh, and your professionalism as a journalist. And uh, you play a very important role in um, the South Coast in terms of bringing important information to light and uh, having uh, respectful discussions on all the issues. So I, I really appreciate you. All right. Well, thank you, Greg. I really appreciate that. All appreciate right. Thanks. It. Have a great day. All right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.